Hello, welcome to Highbrow. I'm your host, Amina. And today, well, first, I have to address that last week I had no episode because of some technical issues, some production issues, just some issues in general. I'm not going to get into that, but the important thing is we're back. We're back and we're better than ever. And today I'm going to be talking about celebrity court fashion. I made a YouTube video about it and I posted that on Sunday. But this is just the expanded version, so what we're going to cover today is just um, a lot more history than what I did in the video. We're going to be talking about Joan of Arc and Mary Queen of Scots, and um, also we're going to be talking about costume design, so the way that characters are dressed in courtroom movies or just movies that feature a courtroom scene, because that's a whole nother can of worms and I think it's really interesting and I'm really excited to get into that. So the inspiration behind this video is Gwyneth Paltrow and um, her trial, her ski related trial. So I think it was a, mo- a month ago she was sued by Terry Sanderson who is this optometrist who's retired because of this skiing collision that they both engaged in in Park City, Utah back in 2016. He initially tried suing her for $3.1 million um, for allegedly crashing into him. Judge dismissed it, so he refiled for $300,000. Gwyneth then countersued for a dollar as a symbolic motion, similar to what Taylor Swift did uh, for her sexual assault trial back in 2017. So Gwyneth won, and it was highly covered because, well, one, I feel like whenever Gwyneth Paltrow does anything, people are interested because she's a very interesting person. She's a very interesting caricature, and I talked about this before, but I think for Gwyneth, she's a very confusing person. And for a really long time, I was someone who was very staunchly anti-Gwyneth because I felt like Goop was just promoting really uh, scammy products and... I also felt like a lot of the things that she said were not good. (laughs) For instance, she just came out recently saying um, she was explaining her diet and her diet is basically all liquid and I don't know, I think when you're positioning yourself as this health guru and you're telling millions of people who probably follow you that you just drink liquid all day, it's uh, irresponsible to say the least. So there's a lot of things that I have issues with when it comes to Gwyneth Paltrow, but I will say that I do find her entertaining because some of it is just so out of pocket. Some of the things that she says are so out of pocket that I'm like, there's no way a real human actually said these things. And in my mind, she's a bit of a cartoon character. But anyways, so another thing that people really paid attention to during this trial was actually Gwyneth Paltrow's outfits. And it led the New York Times resident critic, Vanessa Friedman, to coin the term court core, which refers to the way that celebrities are styled for courtroom trials, which is actually a longstanding genre of styling that we're going to be talking about. So let's just dive right in. So just a content warning before we get started, there is going to be mentions of rape because I'm going to be talking about court cases where that is the topic. So courtroom fashion reporting has been around for basically as long as trials have been around because society loves to look at people, women especially, and nitpick them for their appearance on moral grounds. And you know, what a better environment to do that in than in the circumstances where their morality is literally the debate at hand. 
Joan of Arc, for instance, who was alive in the 15th century uh, when she was arrested on May 23rd, 1430. She was wearing masculine garb of the typical French soldier, which consisted of long conjoined hose attached to a doublet with 20 cords and tight waist-high boots. Very sexy. According to Guillaume Manchon, who was the recorder of her trial, she was then dressed in male clothing and was complaining that she could not give it up, fearing lest in the night her guards would inflict some act of sexual outrage upon her, and she had complained once or twice to the Bishop of Bouvet's, the Vice Inquisitor, and Master Nicholas Louisler, that one of the aforesaid guards had tried to rape her. Incredibly practical reason to wear men's clothing. Um, if you didn't get what I just read, Joan of Arc was afraid of getting raped by her male guards, so she continued to wear men's clothing while imprisoned. And the reason for why men's clothing was helpful in this instance is because men's hose, which were essentially like these medieval leggings, were more difficult to remove than a kirtle, which was typical women's wear of the period. And a kirtle is basically like a dress. So she was literally trying to protect herself while in jail. By the way, there were a lot of code violations happening um, around this trial because the normal practice was for female prisoners to be put in the custody of nuns, which would prevent assaults from happening. But they kept Joan of Arc in a prison guarded by men. However, despite the actual very real practical reason, the court ended up charging her with cross-dressing, which was illegal at the time. And on May 24th, they brought her to the stake and threatened her that if she wouldn't abjure, she would be burned to death. She ended up actually abjuring, aka renouncing her visions of God to save her life. But four days later, she went back to men's clothing and doubled down on her visions. When asked why she resumed these heretical practices, she said that she had done it for the protection of her virginity, for she was not secure while wearing female clothing with her guards who had tried to rape her, which she had complained about many times to the bishop and earl. Additionally, saying that if it would please the Lord judges to place her in a safe location in which she would not be afraid, then she was prepared to readopt female clothing. She was also told that she could attend mass if she put on women's clothing, but she was still being denied. So, you know, what's the point? But here's the thing. There's also testimonies that Joan had told this man, Maceo, I'm not pronouncing that correctly, that two days after her abjuration, her guards pulled off her woman's clothing that covered her and emptied a sack in which were her male clothes. So, weird, right? They literally removed her woman's clothing and left her with men's clothing. And because she had nothing in her room but men's clothes, she had to put them on to go to the latrine or the toilet. This is an important detail, an important testimony that some historians believe is proof that the court was corrupt and was deliberately trying to induce a relapse into heresy. So what that means is at the time, a relapse was the only legitimate cause for death by fire. The men's clothing was used in part to justify her execution because now having signed the abjuration, rewearing men's clothing was now a capital offense. And as Joan's jailer, the Earl of Warwick said, it wasn't enough that Joan be executed, they wanted her to be burned as a witch. Regarding the visions, while she was still afraid of death, she told Judge Pierre Cachon that she had committed the greatest evil in declaring her visions untrue. And while she saved her body, she condemned her soul. She told him, I would rather do penance once and for all. I would rather die than endure any longer the suffering of this prison. 
So for her actual execution at the pyre, she was dressed in a rough tunic of either gray or black and was forced to wear a hat that read the following words, heretic, relapse, apostate, idolater. So I bring up Joan of Arc because one, I think it's just a very interesting case. What made Joan of Arc's trial so spectacular is the fact that um, it was so well recorded. Like historians were able to dig up so much information about this trial that happened hundreds of years ago. And also because it's an example of how a woman's dress is literally instrumental to her sentencing. Trial dress continued to be important a hundred and something years later in 1586 when Mary Queen of Scots was tried for treason. And during her trial, she wore the clothes she wore during her imprisonment, which consisted of a dress and mantle of flowing black velvet, a traditional white headdress with its widow's peak, and a long white gauzy veil. The inventory of her clothes taken on June 13, 1586 at Chartley Hall, Staffordshire, confirmed a preference for black, which might have been because by the 1570s, she had been widowed three times. So Mary was denied legal defense for her trial, but in general, the color black was favored by lawyers. So by selecting this color, the accused sought to present themselves as worthy of being heard. Despite the lack of color, she's still wearing a lot of garments and jewelry as royals do, and this was an advantage that royals had when going to trial, compared to commoners. As Maria Hayward writes in her article, we should dress as fairly for her end, the significance of the clothing worn at elite executions in England in the long 16th century. Once on the scaffold, many Tudor garments would have been an impediment for those about to die by beheading because of the focus on the neck. From the 1540s, men's doublets had small, upright collars, and the female gown had a similar high neckline. Shirts and smocks had close-fitting neckbands. Ruffs and partlets also fit round and accentuated the neck and throat. As a result, the accused, if wanting to maintain a fully dressed and accessorized appearance till the end, would have to remove a number of items in the hope of a swift death. And so while on trial, it was kind of this mind game that some of these royals would play where they would be very decked out as if to remind everyone that it would be quite the process to execute them. Like, you know, it's just going to be too much work. It's too tiring. We might as well not go through with it. Right, guys? However, there were limitations for their wardrobes because it was normal for a royal person to be in prison for a while before their trials. And while imprisoned, their wardrobes were much more limited than what they were used to. Catherine Howard, fifth wife of Henry VIII, was only allowed six sets of clothing and wasn't allowed to wear any gems, pearls, or cloths of gold, silver, or tissue. When Mary was imprisoned, her cousin, Elizabeth I, sent her a parcel of clothing that contained only two old chemises, some black velvet, and a pair of shoes. This was offensive and indicated to Mary that Elizabeth did not intend to support her. Also contextually, the fact that Mary had always had a bigger wardrobe than Elizabeth was a point of tension between them. At her actual execution, Mary Queen of Scots famously wore an all-black satin dress embroidered with black velvet and set with black acorn buttons of jet trimmed with pearl and black shoes. The dress had a train and so she had her manservant, Melvin, carry her train as a mark of her royal status up until the end. Um, you know, this reminded me of a comment that I received on my video where someone was like, might as well serve cunt <laughs> on my last day before jail. <laughs> and that's kind of the mindset. Like people wanted to look dignified till the very end. And despite the whole getup, it was customary, as I said, to remove layers of clothing before getting chopped. So Mary took off her outer clothes and 
what was she was wearing underneath was actually shocking at the time. She was wearing a bodice of crimson satin and petticoats of crimson velvet. Hayward says Mary purposely dressed in the color of martyrdom in the Catholic imagination because Mary was Catholic and she had the support of the Catholic people. So anyways, I bring up Joan of Arc and Mary Queen of Scots because clothing famously played a major role in their trials and sentences and this was hundreds of years ago. And while public opinion arguably didn't matter as much then as it does now, there were people who were clearly affected by their dress choices. Only 20-ish years after her death, Joan of Arc was revered as a martyr after an inquisitorial court reinvestigated Joan's trial and overturned the verdict. After the French Revolution, she became a national symbol of France, and in 1920, the Catholic Church would canonize her as a saint. And even to this day, many queer and trans people have reframed Joan as an icon of trans identity. Last year, the Shakespeare's Globe Theater produced I, Joan, a play that portrays Joan as non-binary. As for Mary, she was generally supported by Catholics throughout her life, as I said, but I think her reinforcing her religion in her final moments helped ensure a lasting positive opinion among Catholics. While never canonized by the church, some Catholics claim that they experienced miracles after visiting Mary's tomb following her execution. I'd argue that none of the clothing choices I talk about in the 20th and 21st centuries hold the same kind of cultural impact as these two historical figures, but also 99% of the celebrities brought into court these days are brought in for very unserious reasons. There's no execution or martyrdom on the line, thankfully. So let's move forward into the 20th century. In 1921, silent film comedian Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle was accused of rape and murder after the mysterious death of actress Virginia Rappay following a party in Arbuckle's hotel room. By the way, if you watch Damien Chazelle's movie Babylon that came out last year, they have a scene at the very beginning that references this happening. There's like a pretty vulgar scene of someone who's definitely supposed to be Roscoe Arbuckle and killing a woman or you know that he's like with a woman and she's like dead and yeah it's just very clearly alluding to this situation but Arbuckle was ultimately acquitted after being tried three times for manslaughter however it had a lasting significance because this was one of the first and most infamous celebrity scandals and there were a number of other scandals that happened in the 1920s that were also very serious for example the murder of producer major film person, William Desmond Taylor, and then also the mysterious poisoning of Olive Thomas, who was a silent film actress, and she was actually married to Mary Pickford's brother. So it was very high profile, and neither of those cases were solved either. But just a lot of scandals were happening in Hollywood, and all of these led up to the Hayes Code, because critics and religious groups were accusing Hollywood of being a depraved site and all these different crimes were not helping and so what they ended up doing to prevent an outside force from censoring Hollywood they created like a censorship group within Hollywood itself so yeah anyways back to Arbuckle's trial a less remembered element of the trial coverage was the public impresses fixation on Arbuckle's wife, Minta Durfee, or Minta Arbuckle at the time, particularly her attire. For context, Minta wasn't some nobody. She was a silent film actress and the first leading lady of Charlie Chaplin. And in the courtroom, she sat behind Roscoe Arbuckle and the press ran daily reports on her outfits. The Washington Times wrote of Minta on September 24th, 1921, 
Mrs. Arbuckle is the prettiest youngest woman in the courtroom and the best dressed. Her costume is of black. The three-piece street dress that she wears is made of the softest clinging black silk crepe with sparkling jet about the low-cut oval neck. With this goes the sheerest of silk stockings, the daintiest Egyptian sandals. Her hat is of chiffon velvet and broad at the brim. Its only trimming is a row of smart black beads. In striking contrast with the somber color is the pink and white beauty of Minta's neck and arms, the vivid carmine of her lips. She wears no jewels save the platinum wedding band and diamond engagement ring. Fashion reporting aimed to appeal to the mostly female audience hooked on the trial coverage. This New York Tribune article published on September 23, 1921, makes a note of how many women were watching Arbuckle's trial. A throng of club women, housewives, and thrill-seekers were in attendance. Women, some gray-haired and some with skirts that barely reached to their knees, jostled and crowded for points of vantage where they could see the defendant and the chair from where the witness spoke. I mean, for women, people of color, and other marginalized groups, appearances have been and still are weaponized to justify judgments towards these individual people's moral characters. The celebrities I'm covering today are all women, and you know, when it comes to women, clothes absolutely come into play. Tom Javade wrote for the Washington Post during Gwyneth Paltrow's trial, Celebrity study experts told the Post that America's fascination with watching celebrities on trial is not gendered, except when it comes to scrutinizing what female celebrities wore to court. It's finally getting warmer, the sun is setting later, and it's the perfect time to catch up with friends and family after the post-New Year drudgery. And one of my favorite ways to hang out is to have a meal and split a bottle of wine. That's why I love First Leaf. As America's most personalized wine company, First Leaf takes the guesswork out of wine selection. You just answer some quick questions about your likes and dislikes, and their experts will curate a selection of award-winning wines tailored to your taste. There's really no easier way to get into the world of wines than with First Leaf. I requested a fruitier and springier wine selection to match the season, and I absolutely loved all the bottles I received, especially the Color Wash Rosé, which makes the tastiest and most stylish bev for a Marie Antoinette-themed picnic if you're so inclined to have one. You also get to choose how often you receive your wine, and every selection is backed by First Leaf's 100% satisfaction guarantee. And because First Leaf cuts out the middleman and works directly with some of the world's foremost wine producers, you get quality wines at prices much lower than you pay at the store. I love sharing great wine with my friends and family, and I know you will too, so give First Leaf a try. Head over to tryfirstleaf.com highbrow to sign up and save 50% off your first six bottles plus free shipping. That's T-R-Y-F-I-R-S-T-L-E-A-F dot com slash highbrow to save 50% off your first six bottles plus free shipping. Tryfirstleaf.com slash highbrow. So now that we've established all that, let's get into the ethos of how to dress for court. Say, if you were a woman who was uh, convicted of some innocuous crime, how are you going to convey your innocence? So one way is, of course, to wear an outfit that makes you literally look innocent, that has the jury going, there's no way that a woman who wears bows in her hair could ever get away with, um, tax evasion. In December 2001, Winona Ryder was convicted of shoplifting $5,000 worth of designer goods at Saks Fifth Avenue in Beverly Hills. This trial was such a media frenzy that even though I, who was not old enough to be cognizant of what was happening, but my dad actually knew what was happening. <laughs> Maybe it's because Winona Ryder was one of the biggest, hottest um, female actresses of the time, or maybe it was because she was caught stealing items of clothing that she could definitely afford, or maybe it was just because she was a woman, but whatever the reason, her trial was a fashion event. Even fashion critic Robin Given weighed in on her courthouse style. She may be a shoplifter, but she has impeccable taste. So what exactly did she wear? 
During the trial, Winona went for looks that were youthful and delicate. She wore headbands, midi skirts, schoolgirl jumpers, lace, floral patterns, and subdued colors. Compare that to her usual street style, which has always leaned more grunge and goth, and you can tell that she or her PR team or her lawyer were making calculated moves. Despite these best efforts, Winona still was sentenced to uh, three years probation, ordered to do 480 hours of community service, and was fined a total amount of $2,700. She was also ordered to pay compensation to Saks for the items that she stole and to go to counseling. Why did this happen? She was dressed for success. Well, given theorized that the overt good girl styling worked against her. Could it be that even for a Beverly Hills jury, Ryder was just a tad too well put together? Did they sense in her an attempt at manipulative wardrobing so slick that it backfired? And there may be an ounce of truth to that because if you look back at these publications that were published at the time, um, everything from these tabloid gossip rags to legacy magazines, they all seem to relish in this misogynistic way in the juxtaposition of her glamorous court appearance with the humiliation of the entire scandal. Another classic look that a lot of celebrities fall back on is of course the all-white ensemble. The reason? Well, white symbolically represents purity. Winona actually did wear an all-white look to one of her court days. And when Lindsay Lohan was arrested, she also wore all-white on a number of different court appearances. The most talked-about white look of Lindsay's was the Kimberly Ovitz dress she wore in February 2011. At the time, she was convicted of felony grand theft charges for allegedly stealing a $2,500 necklace from a Venice, California jewelry store. In her court appearance, she wore a short white dress, a choice that led the Huffington Post to publish an article titled, Lindsay Lohan wears white dress, shows lots of leg at court. However, every action has an equal and opposite reaction because also at the same time, that dress that she wore literally sold out everywhere online. Naomi Campbell also wore all white, or should I say all cream, when she went to testify at The Hog in August 2010. The court case was relating to the war crimes of former Liberian President Charles Taylor. Campbell was brought in because she was alleged to have received a blood diamond from him while staying at Nelson Mandela's home in 1997. She wore a knit dress with a matching cardigan from Azadine Alaya's spring collection, along with minimal makeup, a beehive hairdo, and an evil eye pendant necklace. While not on trial, testifying in an international, like, war crimes court... <laughs> It's definitely a pretty nerve-wracking experience. Um, she didn't even want to do it for a while, and it was because she was subpoenaed in that she had to, and the reason she didn't want to do it was because she felt it was compromising her and her family's safety, which is totally fair. Uh, he was the Liberian president, after all, and therefore probably very well connected. Naomi actually won a court ruling um, that banned any photographers and videographers from taking images of her going in and exiting the courthouse. Though, of course, cameras were allowed within the courthouse for documentation purposes, which is how we were able to find out what she was wearing um, from these little grainy screenshots. <laughs> Her testimony was important um, in serving the prosecution's case, and so being taken seriously was imperative in order to serve justice. And so dressing in a way that added to her moral credibility definitely helped. I think she was also concerned about saying anything that might incriminate her. So um, yeah. Jacob Bernstein wrote for the Daily Beast, there was nothing over the top swanky about her appearance to distract or undermine her credibility. No bag to connote excessive privilege. Even the pendant she wore was simple. In other words, she stayed away from diamonds.
I don't know if anyone remembers the McDonald's scandal that was going on a couple years back about the older lady that spilled coffee on herself and then was suing McDonald's. So basically what had happened was that she had spilled hot coffee on herself and a lot of people were made to believe that the reason she was suing was because she was dumb and made a mistake. But the reality is that the hot coffee was way too hot and she was in the hospital with their degree burns. It was that. And the reason everyone was against her was because there were specific people in charge of turning, you know, the court of public opinion against her. They wanted people to believe that she was the one in the wrong. And, you know, I'm not saying for sure, because obviously I don't know for sure that this is the same case in other high-profile cases like with celebrities. What I am saying is that there are people in charge of these situations to make sure that, you know, the public, you know, people on social media, all that, that they hear our biased side of the story, you know. So I'm not saying that Amber Heard and Johnny Depp both had lawyers doing this, but I promise you that their publicists were definitely making sure that things that were being published or that stories were coming out, that they were a part of that because that's the point. You want the court of public opinion on your side, and so people will do that. So what we hear is really only one part of the story. We really have no clue what's going on. Yeah, I absolutely think that public opinion and media coverage can sway the outcome of a trial because if we look at Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, it was so heavily publicized, right? I didn't follow the trial, like I wasn't watching it, but I was seeing so much commentary come up on my timelines on every single social media account. Like you could not escape it. And when I think about how there was a jury for that trial and how these jurors definitely were probably exposed to a lot of what the media was pushing out. And that probably affected the way that they thought about the trial. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like the criminal justice system is always going to be fucked up and flawed and it's never going to be perfect. I feel like because it's relying on individual testimony, it's relying on witnesses and stuff, but everything should be contained in the courtroom. Evidence should be contained in the courtroom. I don't think body language experts who probably don't even have any expertise like I think it's a pseudoscience like I'm sorry I think it's a pseudoscience and I think body language experts need to get a job get a real job because a lot of the traits that they characterize as traits of like a liar for example fidgeting or not making eye contact and stuff like that those are traits of how some people behave who are Um, mentally ill who are on the spectrum who have ADHD it's like you don't have to be a liar to exhibit those kinds of behaviors and I think when a lot of body language experts generalize certain behaviors then it doesn't allow for nuance and also just like it comes off as ableist and it definitely victimizes people who you know have mental illnesses or who are disabled or who are neurotypical so Yeah, I'm just like against body language experts. Anyways, the point is I feel like it's impossible to be a juror and to be super impartial and just to consider everything that's happening within the court because especially with a case like Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, it was everywhere and there's no way you're not going to see that and there's no way that like other people's opinions, other people's like outside peanut gallery talk is not going to bleed into what you are perceiving as happening and especially because algorithms these days, I feel like the algorithm just knows if I'm talking about something, 
If I'm talking about sunscreen with a friend, I'm suddenly going to see ads about sunscreen. So duh, the algorithm is going to, not to be like all, you know, tinfoil hat, but the algorithm is probably like, yeah, this person is listening to Johnny Depp and Amber Heard all day long at this trial. I'm going to show them this content on social media when they go home. So if you don't really want to go the youthful route, you're like, no, that's not going to work for me. That's not how I like to appear in life. Um, the other route is actually to go the more mature, professional way. So you could wear business attire, which would establish this professional image, which would then symbolize that you are someone who's responsible, intelligent, credible, and maybe most importantly, someone who has respect for the court, which always reflects well um, towards the judge or the jury. In 2011, in relation to her shoplifting arrest, Lindsay Lohan also chose this method by showing up to her grand theft hearing wearing a suit. Her outfit was reportedly made up of Chanel, Lanvin, YSL, and Treglam jewelry. Despite wearing a low-cut shirt that the press, of course, speculated as being a calculated move to incite anger from the slut-shaming observers, celebrity lawyer L. Londell McMillan told EW that the outfit was supposed to make her look more professional, especially considering the first outfit was the white dress that people criticized as being party attire. He said, I think the suit choice was perhaps a response to the public, but more in direct relation to her lawyer taking control over all the elements and aspects of the case. I think it was an improvement because it showed that there was respect for the court of law. In 2022, Amber Heard went to court with her ex-husband Johnny Depp in a highly covered media circus event. I personally didn't follow it because I have complicated feelings towards making abuse cases into spectacles and it did make me kind of uncomfortable to see how many eyes were actually focused on this case. But, um, you know, at the same time, I can see why people were invested because they are very high profile figures. And I think as humans, we're just like interested in this idea of justice and punishment and um, yada yada, which is why true crime is forever making money. But anyways, during the trial, Amber chose to go for classic suits that were mostly muted in tones of gray and navy. She wore trouser suits or skirts to the mid-calf, blouses buttoned all the way up, often with ties or pussy bows, belts, and pumps. Friedman wrote about her outfits for the New York Times. Tasteful, but not telegraphing expense. Her makeup is subtle, her jewelry small, her hair is done in a series of complicated 1930s updos, braids, and buns. The occasional tendril just escaping its bonds. Her vibe is not victim or naive innocent or Madonna, often a tactic for female defendants. Rather, Miss Heard suggested demure and competent girl Friday, from an era when women had to struggle to be heard, and when they nevertheless came to the aid of the home front and proved their valor. Corporate coach Diane Craig similarly agreed with Heard's styling impact. She believed the suits helped counterbalance Amber's artistic image as an actress. Craig noted, the suit says that her thoughts are more organized and that helps to add to her credibility. When you wear a jacket, it adds a lot of power to your appearance because of the structure of it, the corporate aspect of it. She wants to project this image of credibility and composure. However, not everyone thought that Amber was rocking it with these suits. There is this um, jury expert, Dr. Jill Huntley-Taylor, who criticized the choice, thinking that the suits would actually sway the jury from sympathizing with her. Taylor told Insider, to me, she's presenting herself as a powerful woman. Powerful women can be abused, but that's not the general narrative. I don't think it's to her advantage to be dressed this way. In the cases that I mentioned so far, Lindsay Lohan and Winona Ryder, 
Um, they weren't going against anyone in court, but it's like different when you're actually facing another person because the public is also focused on what that person is wearing. Amber was against Johnny Depp and Johnny is someone who is a man and therefore is someone who would wear a suit in professional settings and that's what he did. He wore a suit. Some people were convinced that Amber was purposely picking outfits that looked similar to Johnny's outfits um, in an attempt to play mind games on him. (laughs) Tons of viewers took to Twitter to share their thoughts on Depp and Hurd's alike looks, with one calling her sick in the head for mimicking his clothes. They wrote, is anyone going to address why Amber is mimicking Johnny's outfits every day? This woman is sick in the head. So there were a lot of ridiculous takes in general, and I think... The idea that Amber was specifically mimicking Johnny's suit choices is one of those ridiculous takes. I think that when you're going to trial, looking professional and looking reliable is a very important thing to convey. And suits carry these connotations for all genders. Hi, Nina. Um, So I'm a law student. And I'm just about to start my career as a public defender, so I'm going to be doing criminal defense. It's a career that means a lot to me, and I'm really excited to be doing it. It's something that I really believe in. I believe that everybody has a right to an attorney, and that as an abolitionist, I really don't believe in people going to prison. I don't like the prison industrial complex, and all of this is something that I've thought about a lot, and it's something that I do on a day-to-day basis. It's like grapple with the idea of like who deserves to be in prison and like do I think that prison should exist and like whenever there are celebrity trials I like run into this issue where I feel like my friends are excited to try to talk to me about them because they're like oh like this is kind of like what you do and like maybe you'll have an interesting opinion on this but actually I just have a really hard time talking about like legal stuff on TV because like the way that the law is talked about in that format makes it come across as being so trivial when it's like even with like Amber Heard and Johnny Depp I was like this is their lives but like it being broadcasted in that way and like both of their sides being so oversimplified it was just like frustrating to watch because and also like when people talk about like attorneys saying like well how could you ever defend somebody like that or like how could you ever like whatever and I'm like I again like especially if it's a criminal case I think everybody has a right to an attorney even if you hate that person that person has a right to an attorney and like I just feel like the conversations get so distilled and so oversimplified because of the way that we're so used to consuming like media about things like we can't think about it in a nuanced way when it's celebrities basically and I just feel like everyone's like feels compelled to pick a side in a way that just ends up not giving either side the nuance that they deserve and it just comes across I don't know I, I yeah I, I worry that it comes across as being trivializing whenever there are celebrity courtroom appearances also I just don't know that I think that cameras should be in courtrooms I know that for me my clients that are being prosecuted by the state if they were ever being recorded in the courtroom there'd be like huge implications for they could like they could lose their jobs they could like lose their housing and like this is the whole point is that you're innocent until proven guilty and so if people are watching you on tv as you're being being judged i just worry that the implications of that would happen even if you're ultimately found to be not guilty i just worry that having your face plastered everywhere with the charge even if it's proven or not proven i just think it it creates this 
association in people's minds, and I'm not comfortable with courtroom TV in general for that reason. So you raise a really interesting point, and it's because I've never really thought about how witnesses feel when they're being recorded or how people feel when they're just at the stand and how the thought of being recorded might affect how they deliver a testimony, how confident they are and how convincing they are or just like, you know, their willingness to say things if they feel that it's going to be documented forever and potentially used against them at a later point in time. Like, I think that's so real. And I don't know how it operates in other countries because... There are definitely other countries where they don't record trials unless it's like for something super, super serious for the government, for example, like if they're trying a politician or something like that. But yeah, so it's interesting how those systems work. And I I wonder how better or how more flawed they are compared to the U.S. legal system. The thing with courtroom recording for me is that I feel like it is necessary because of how botched a lot of these courtroom proceedings are. So it's necessary to be able to document that to hold courts accountable. You know, like even just like with the the Joan of Arc thing, I know that was hundreds of years ago, but that's just a really early example of how courts would not follow protocol and just wrongfully convict people. And it still continues to this day. Fiona Apple, she released like a video back earlier I think it was like this year I don't know it was either last year or this year but she made a video talking about how she actually is a court watcher and so she'll like tune in to a live stream and watch um, court proceedings happening and she basically like sits in on them to make sure that there's nothing crazy happening on behalf of the court and making sure that like people are getting tried fairly and that they're not being taken advantage of and she's advocated on how it's like a really important thing to do so yeah I guess I can see both sides of the argument I just like lean a little bit more strongly towards uh, Fiona Apple's position because I feel more transparency is better I don't know if necessarily they should be live streamed and broadcasted for everyone to see as it's happening but I think definitely something should be recorded and kept on record and made publicly available post-trial so that people can look back and make sure that things were okay. If you're someone who shaves as part of their personal care routine, and especially when the weather gets warmer and swimsuit season is just around the corner, then you'll love Athena Club's razor kit. It's only $10 and comes with two blade heads, a magnetic hook for shower storage, which I love, and a handle color of your choice. Mine is the limited edition mint green. Athena Club's razor has thousands of five-star reviews from customers, and it's not surprising why. It's designed with built-in skin guards to help prevent razor burn while being gentle on curves, and the razor blade is also surrounded by a water-activated serum with shea butter and hyaluronic acid, which is a holy grail for skincare, so it's very fancy. And with Athena Club, you never have to think about blade refills because you can choose how often you want your replacement blades shipped to you for free, and you'll never be stuck with an overused blade longer than it should be used for, which, you know. Not saying that it's happened to me, but it might have happened to me. Show your skin you care with the Athena Club Razor Kit. Head to athenaclub.com and use code MINA for 25% off your first order. Again, that's athenaclub.com and use code MINA for 25% off. Athena Club has also launched in Target stores nationwide, so make sure to check out the shaving aisle to buy their products in-store in real life. But the boldest and most press-worthy dress choices 
are when you're literally or figuratively giving the middle finger to the court. So if we go back to Winona Ryder, her most famous look during her court case was probably the black dress she wore from the 2001 Marc Jacobs collection. Some coverage noted that this dress was part of her, like, good girl styling. Given wrote for the Washington Post, the Marc Jacobs dress, the one from the Autumn 2001 collection with the contrasting Trump low collar, was particularly apt. It was so stately and refined, so serious. And it was a year old, as if to suggest to the members of the jury that they were dealing with a frugal young woman, not an indulgent actress. Look, it's a sweet dress, and no doubt it conveys a sense of, like, good girlism. But I think what's more important to note is that the most expensive item that Winona was caught shoplifting was a $760 cashmere sweater made by Marc Jacobs. And so in a way, I feel like Winona wearing Marc Jacobs was like a subtle F you. Like it wasn't something that people would know just from looking at her. The judge wouldn't know, um, and the prosecution probably wouldn't know, but everyone who's in the know would know. <laughs> And the funny thing is, her boldness was ultimately rewarded because Marc Jacobs ended up casting her in his spring 2003 campaign, eventually making her a spokesperson for his beauty brand in 2015, and more recently, a campaign in 2022 promoting Marc Jacobs' J. Mark shoulder bag. A year after the court case, W Magazine did an interview with Winona and published the famous editorial photo, which was also the issue's cover photo, of her boldly wearing a t-shirt that says, Free Winona on the front. So I know, even though this is like a post-court trial um, fashion choice, I think it's worth noting because it is such like a cult image. And the story behind the shirt is that in January 2002, this gift shop owner, his name is Billy Sangars, he created 600 of these t-shirts for $15 a pop that were selling out, in his words, like tooth whitener. <laughs> he told Vogue, sales are exploding. I'm getting 100 calls a day. With the types of political events that have been going on since the 11th of September, it's been hard to make a statement that isn't consistent with stop terrorism or promote the USA. This type of humor is a way to be political without necessarily taking a stand that's going to offend somebody. This gives people an expression that is radical and at the same time meaningless. Josie, W's former fashion director, spoke of the decision to style Winona in the shirt. We were shooting Winona Ryder shortly after her shoplifting charge, and I thought, could we put her in that free Winona t-shirt? In the end, Winona was a dream. She loved the risk of doing something different and she loved the picture. It's one of my favorite covers to this day. I know that like 600 people is a small case study, but I think that even though most of the women that I've discussed so far, they've ended up getting like punished in some way, like they didn't all get off scot-free. I think that the sentencing and public opinion are two different things. And sometimes they're correlated and sometimes they're not. And usually if the public likes the way that you dress, they will support you even if you lose the case. So these Winona Ryder moments were very subtle, but a more overt FU moment was Lindsay Lohan's 2010 court ensemble that was complete with a tie-dye manicure that read FU on the middle finger. For context, she was in court because she was skipping out on her mandatory alcohol education classes. Lindsay's lawyer for the case, Sean Chapman Hawley said, the fact is the words could barely be seen by the naked eye that a courtroom camera purportedly there to accurately chronicle the proceedings would use a telephoto lens to zoom in as it did to Miss Lohan's fingernail is a commentary on the entire issue. Which I think is totally true. Like, why are you zooming in on such a small detail of a woman's appearance? Like, if you look at the photos, the writing is so small that there's no way that the judge would even be able to see it. And so I felt like the choice, the rebellious choice was more for like her peace of mind 
than to make some statement um, towards the court. Also, Molly Fitzpatrick, who covered the hearing for Gawker, noted that Lindsay spent a lot of time doodling and writing during the actual hearing. So it's also possible that it wasn't a premeditated choice and literally something that she drew on her nail out of frustration or boredom throughout the hearing. Though Lindsay herself did respond to critics at the time via Twitter claiming innocence. Um, She tweeted, didn't we do our nails as a joke with our friend DC? It had nothing to do with court. It's an airbrush design from a stencil, XX. Whatever you believe, I love Lindsay Lohan, though I think sometimes, like, particularly in this um, 2000s era, whenever she makes a statement that could be true or not, I think of when she called Paris Hilton the C word. Ew, I literally hate YouTube censorship. It makes me feel like I'm teaching in elementary school. Anyway, she was using like the C word to describe Paris Hilton and it was literally caught on camera. And then (laughs) when the paparazzi like pressed on her about it, she was like, I would never call Paris that. Paris is my friend. (laughs) Not saying that she lied in this particular statement, but it's just something that I think about. Another type of overt styling is the way that Cardi B dressed going to her court dates. Cardi B was facing assault charges against two employees of the strip club called Angel's Nightclub back in 2018. She was sentenced to 15 days of community service. But some of Cardi's ensembles include a Brogger's girly pantsuit that cost almost $2,000 paired with a customized hot pink Hermes Birkin, a $4,790 pink power suit by Salvatore Ferragamo paired with Christian Louboutin heels and a $7,300 snake print Chanel bag and a set from Christian Ciarano's spring-summer 2019 collection accessorized with Dior sunglasses and Hermes Birkin and Saint Laurent sandals. Cardi's done also a couple all-white looks, but my favorite one is the one that she wore in January 2023. She was wearing an oversized fake fur coat by Adrienne Landau, a sleeveless dress by Aritzia, Louboutin heels, and Christian Dior sunglasses. Except for this all-white look, it's clear that Cardi was not trying to project innocence. To me, it was more of like a calculated understanding of what people expect celebrities to dress like when they appear in court, and it was saying an F you to those expectations. Designer Salo Villela, who was responsible for the Adrian Landau coat, told the Daily Beast, fashion is about making the best out of every moment, you know? When you get dressed, it's to make yourself feel better, I believe. Whether or not she was having a bad day, this outfit definitely made her feel like the star that she is. That's a good thing. And I think that's really true. I think it's easy to get caught up in the whole spectacle aspect of these cases and believe that everything that a celebrity wears is super calculated and they're trying to say something. But sometimes, like, you know, if you're going through a stressful day, which usually a day in court would entail, then it's more about dressing in a way that makes you feel comfortable and that makes you feel like you can deal with the press hounding you, with the judge sentencing you to something that you either did or didn't do. And yeah, I think that's, it's very true. In September 2022, Megan the Stallion showed up to the LA courthouse in a belted bold purple Sergio Hudson pantsuit, which is also the color for domestic violence awareness. She was there to testify against rapper Tory Lanez, who was accused of shooting and injuring her in 2020. Of course, the color is symbolic, but she also looks good. She looks confident. She looks sure of herself. And I feel like these are all traits that you would want to feel when coming face to face with your abuser. Hi, 
Hi, Nina. My name is Paula. I'm from Miami, living in Boston currently. I have to say that I've always liked watching celebrity court cases because they kind of humanized them for the longest time for me. Like, it made them celebrities feel more up to our level, like the fact that someone that was on the Disney Channel all the time, like Lindsay Lohan, went from, like, teenage of um, drama queen confessions and then was literally in a courthouse, like, in such a mundane environment. And it's honestly kind of comical at times because we put them on such a platform and we see them in such a mundane, very, like, citizen-y setting. But honestly, after the whole Amber versus Johnny Depp thing, I think it also gets a little bit out of control with the media. I'm not going to put much of my opinions on that, but the fact that I think it was very one-sided in the fact of, like, the media and everyone who was supporting one side and not the other, I I feel like it was very skewed, and I feel like in a normal legal setting, the media usually isn't a big factor. But I guess, like, that's just the price of having, like, celebrities in the courtroom and maybe it's something, like, even more on a deeper scale. So, I don't know, let's see, like, Amanda Knox, I think that also showed how much, like, the media is a huge essence in that. So now I don't I don't know if I would like to see, like, celebrity court cases get so publicized because um, I think it has an unfair advantage on both parties that are participating. So I think it changes a lot from the beginning where it used to be, like, oh, my goodness, like, there's Paris Hilton, like, literally sitting in a courtroom and having to listen to, like, a judge, which is something, like, most citizens have to do if we're ever in a courtroom, to now it's, like, maybe having a negative impact on their lives. Yeah, you know, I have received a couple, several voice notes from people who are pro-watching trials, and it is because they feel like, putting celebrities on trial is humanizing and it's being able to see someone who lives such a privileged life still be held accountable in some way for doing something and usually like they're never held accountable in the same way that a lot of real people are made to help be held accountable for committing the same crimes or whatever but it is just watching someone who you only know in this limelight be humbled in a sense and I can see why that can be an addicting experience but I feel like most of the trials that people really enjoyed watching like you said Lindsay Lohan and Paris Hilton and a lot of these cases they weren't trials but it was like this celebrity was arrested for DUI but they didn't kill anyone they were just like you know caught drinking and driving or they were um arrested for shoplifting and you know more innocuous stuff where there were not clear victims and I feel like there weren't major consequences for society in the same way that Johnny Depp and Amber Heard's trial was like so yeah I totally agree I think that it can be fun and I think that's what was happening with Gwyneth Paltrow's trial like people just enjoyed seeing Gwyneth Paltrow in a courtroom environment and having to just do the mundane courtroom proceedings and there weren't like any serious stakes at hand but it is dangerous when people don't recognize the severity of certain court cases over others and I definitely when I was watching the coverage unfold about Amber Heard and Johnny Depp it was like people were just treating it like it was reality tv like 
there weren't going to be real consequences for these people's lives and like they were just characters and it, it is quite dehumanizing and it also is just like very painful and triggering I imagine for people who have been in domestic abuse related trials and to have to see how the public responds to this kind of content yeah it's just icky but I also hesitate to judge people who do enjoy it or who enjoyed it too harshly because I feel like it's just the way that our society has worked. It's the way that celebrity culture has worked. It's the way that people have been taught to develop parasocial relationships with celebrities and to hold them on pedestals and to not see them as real people. So I don't think anyone can be completely blamed for how out of hand it got. So you may be wondering, what styling technique did Gwyneth Paltrow utilize? For me, I think she went with the not giving a fuck method. And the reason is that while she is wearing like professional clothes, um, she's wearing a lot of muted colors, clean lines, and conservative coverage, she also looks very relaxed. The clothes have this sort of like sway as she's moving. There's nothing specifically tight or constricting or stiff. Her clothes thus give this impression of like a quiet confidence. Like this day in court isn't particularly special. Um, she's not guilty of anything and it's just a regular day because I also think she dresses like this normally as well. Some of the people following the trial thought Gwyneth was channeling the character Shiv Roy's soft power dressing from the TV show Succession, aka the poster child for the stealth wealth or quiet luxury style. The concept of stealth wealth has gotten a lot of buzz lately because of Succession, but um, just to like explain it in simple terms, it's this idea that if you're a rich person, you're not going to wear anything like particularly flaunting or flashy. You're not going to wear any logos, but the clothes that you wear are still expensive. They're just only clothes people would recognize as expensive if they were also in the know. Arguably, the most popular look of the week was what she wore on day one, a $5,445 olive green coat from The Row, a $1,815 crema sweater from Laura Piana, and $1,200 tan lace-up Celine boots and Ray-Ban aviators, along with a $325 notebook from Smithson, a British luxury leather goods brand. Some other very pricey outfit details throughout the week include Napa leather culottes from Proenza Schooler, $895, a navy corduroy Bella Freud jacket that she probably bought full price, which was $1,000, a black cashmere polo shirt from Prada, $2,200, and most egregious, a custom 18-carat yellow chain from Fondria that cost $25,000. Gwyneth also chose to wear some things from her own brand, Goop. <laughs> this includes Goop's G-label Bennett belted crewneck cardigan on day two and their Alyssa V-neck cardigan that she wore on day five. Some online commenters theorize that Gwyneth was using the trial and exploiting exploiting the high publicity coverage of it to promote her brand, especially because the items that she wore were available still to purchase on her website. But hey, can you blame her? I mean, just going back to uh, Lindsay Lohan, the fact that the dress that she was wearing literally sold out. So I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing to want to promote yourself, especially if you're in a court case that feels extremely stupid and a big waste of your time. You might as well get something out of it. I think these outfits also work because of the audience. If you don't know, Park City, Utah is one of the most expensive skiing towns in America. So I don't think it's a crazy thing to assume that most of the people who live there are in a higher income tax bracket. 
Friedman writes, Paltrow is dressing, according to numerous locals, a lot like the people walking down Main Street. Whatever happens, according to many interviewees, the sentiment in Park City at least seems to be leaning towards Miss Paltrow, which suggests that when it comes to image making in court, know your audience is as much a legal maxim as a Hollywood one. I'd argue that Gwyneth Paltrow has one of the most successful celebrity court trial coverages ever, <laughs> especially in terms of public opinion, because you see, I feel like a lot of the people that I personally know were never fans of Gwyneth Paltrow, but they were all hoping that she would win this court case. Louis Staples even wrote an article about this phenomenon for The Cut called The Surprisingly Delightful Spectacle of Gwyneth Paltrow's Ski Trial. He covers a number of factors about why people would root for Gwyneth, but um, a lot of it goes down to how low stakes this trial is for, you know, the state of the world. People just like enjoyed watching something that you couldn't put a morality spin on. <laughs> Lewis also writes something that I think is very interesting about Gwyneth Paltrow in general. He writes, why does Paltrow get away with so much? Perhaps because we're never quite sure how much of her persona is real and how much is a performance. She rose to fame as an Oscar-winning actress, but it's now implicit that Gwyneth Paltrow is a character in her own right too, one that she has shrewdly tapped to turn Goop into a global wellness empire. Out-of-touch quotes are a quirk of this character that fans love, from claiming she practically invented yoga to insisting she'd rather smoke crack than eat cheese from a can, or now suggesting that missing half a day of skiing is a hardship. Was this comment unplanned enough to come from the real Gwyneth, or was it improvisation work from a skilled actor? In America, you can get away with pretty much anything as long as you are entertaining enough. Spectacle always has the power to distort or distract from the truth, and spinning a scam into a spectacle might be the most American thing of all. It's interesting that despite this fixation on appearance, there's no surefire way to dress that will sway public opinion in your favor. Like Amber Heard puts on a suit and people claim that she's doing it to mock Johnny Depp. Gwyneth Paltrow puts on a suit and people make memes about her throwing the first skis at Stonewall. <laughs> I mean, I think part of it, and this has less to do with how you dress and more just about people wanting you to win or to lose. And it has to do with like parasocial relationships. So I think that the more popular you are, the more likely people are going to root for you to win um, your court case. Um, in 2006, the Vanderbilt Journal of Entertainment and Technology Law actually compared potential A-list, D-list, and private defendants and found that the high celebrity status defendant was rated as less responsible for the crime than the low celebrity status defendant. Now, I don't think that many people have a parasocial relationship with Gwyneth Paltrow. Or maybe I'm not friends with enough upper-class wellness influencers, but I feel like it's kind of hard to develop a parasocial relationship with someone who just feels very out of this world, which is how I see Gwyneth. I think what worked in her favor was the airing of succession and also the renewed interest in the whole old money aesthetic. I almost feel like the pendulum has kind of swung away from the whole eat the rich narrative and back to this idea of like idolizing the rich, but that's like another conversation, another video, another day. <laughs> the ultimate irony though, is that the press and public are often more interested in judging celebrity outfits for the theater of the court than in judging their actual guilt and innocence. And that public judgment is often more impactful for these celebrities who are insulated from consequences by their wealth and fame than the actual verdict. And maybe it's just that. It's because celebrities rarely face consequences that are proportional to the crimes that they've committed that the courtroom transforms into this theater. 
where we regularly refer to someone taking the stand as their performance, and we judge them based on their emotional deliverance, their use of props, and of course, their costumes. So the last thing I want to talk about is actually court court in movies, because, you know, we're talking about how people like to view celebrity court trials as movies, but what about court cases that are actually in movies? So it shouldn't be surprising to anyone that courtroom dramas have been a touchstone of cinema since the earliest days of film. They just procure the perfect environments for a movie's climax because you have these shocking twists that can be exposed. Legally Blonde comes to mind when, you know, I forget the girl's name, but she had a perm and she claimed that she was in the shower when her dad was shot, but you can't take a shower right after you get a perm. I think that's what happens, right? And it was like shocking. That was major. Um, And I also think that it's just because we Americans have a tendency to really like a black and white kind of ending to a movie. And a sentencing, a judge literally ruling a party as guilty or not guilty, basically granting a side as the winning side, that really plays into the black and white morality that a lot of Americans like to see in mainstream film. And as Jessica Silby writes for her article, American Trial Films and the Popular Culture of Law, the visual tropes in American trial films are familiar and consistent. They help build and sustain the trial film genre as predictable for viewers who learn to expect a certain satisfaction from the climactic courtroom scene. For example, trial films typically open with an establishing shot of the courthouse. It's cupola wide steps and columns. Sometimes the film's beginning contains patriotic statues, Lady Liberty, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, reminding the viewer of national values that animate our legal system. The grand house of law resembles a house of worship. It is both daunting and promising. It is also inviting. The camera usually pans up from a street view, looking at the steps to the courthouse or statue from a street perspective, positioning the viewer as an eventual entrant and citizen in the house of law. So there's a lot that goes into costuming a courtroom scene because like with all costume design, you have to use clothes that represent who the character is. But the thing with the courtroom is you also have to pinpoint what the character might want to convey to the jury. A court case in a movie is like a play within a play. So let's take a look at some examples. Chicago, which was released in 2002, is a black comedy movie musical that was adapted from the 1975 stage musical which itself was based on a 1926 play of the same name, which in turn was inspired by the real-life case of Beulah Annan in 1924. So I've made a video a really, really long time ago, like years ago, on Chicago's costume designs. It's one of my favorite movies of all times. It's one of my favorite musicals of all times. I just really love it. I think it's because I'm very aesthetic-driven with it and the 1920s uh, jazz, anything that relates to that kind of area, I'm immediately plugged in. But the story of Chicago goes, throughout the film, there are two female murderers who vie for attention from the press to come off innocent, to save their necks, quite literally. But they end up stuck in this hole trying to get attention from the press machine that they lose sight of the plot of just trying to get free and instead are trying to create scandal after scandal to launch their entertainment careers. The main character of the movie is Roxy Hart, and in order to gain public sympathy, she reinvents herself as a Southern Christian for the trial. And to gain public sympathy, she blames her action of murder on modern urban vices like jazz and alcohol, and she feigns repentance. She's like, oh my god, I'm so sorry, I will never do that again. I am like a child of God now. 
And to visually represent this reinvention, she wears her most conservative costume in the public-facing scenes. Her hair is pinned back, her makeup is subdued, and her skirt is longer. And in court, she actually wears a Puritan white collar to really drive home that point. The movie really plays into these ideas, these contrasting ideas of what a good woman is and what a bad woman is. And Roxy, prior to going to trial and prior to getting made up by her lawyer, um, who's played by Richard Gere, Mr. Billy Flynn, she presents herself as a bad woman because her hair is like kind of messy. Her her clothes are kind of flashy or they're a little slutty, God forbid. And those physical characteristics are not going to hold up in trial, which is why Billy Flynn tells her that she needs to get a makeover because if she's going to win the court of public opinion, she needs to look like a pious young lady. To Kill a Mockingbird is another movie that features a pretty prominent courtroom scene. It's based on the 1960 novel by Harper Lee and was adapted into a film in 1962. Throughout the movie, clothes visualize race, class, and gender divides. One of the main characters, Atticus Finch, he is a lawyer and he's played by Gregory Peck and he's also very sexy in this movie. He is set apart from most of the cast by his costumes. He's wearing three-piece seersucker suits and he has a pocket watch and horned-rimmed glasses, which all work to characterize him as this classic Southern gentleman. Tom Robinson, who is a black man falsely accused of raping a white woman, he is the person that Atticus Finch is defending in court. He appears in court in a pair of bib overalls. He's an impoverished sharecropper, so he didn't have the finances to carefully select an outfit for court to manipulate how the jury would perceive him. He kind of just had to make do with what he had, which was cleaning and pressing his garments. But also his inability to look as professional in court reflects the town's inability to judge him fairly. Mayella Ewell, the supposed victim of Robinson's attack, takes the stand in a girlish floral dress and prim headband. She looks very juvenile, and that is supposed to sinisterly evoke her frailty and victimhood as she gives her false testimony. Her abusive father, Bobby Will, also attends the trial in bib overalls, but unlike Robinson, Ewell makes no efforts to clean up for court. He has a very wrinkled shirt and dirty overalls that display both his destitute class status and his privilege as a white man. He doesn't need to clean up his look in order for his false testimony to be believed by the jury. So the last movie I have to give a mention to is, of course, Legally Blonde. Legally Blonde stars Reese Witherspoon in the character of Elle Woods. She is a law student who goes to Harvard Law School to win back her ex-boyfriend who dumps her because she's not smart enough or he believes she's not smart enough because Elle Woods is a very West Coast kind of girl. She belongs in a sorority. She studied fashion merchandising and she wears a lot of feminine and fun costumes. When she arrives at Harvard, she, of course, maintains her fashionable and hyper-feminine presentation, which her classmates look down upon. And, of course, she wears her signature color pink. Costume designer Sophie Durakoff explains why Elle's signature color is pink. She says the backstory is, Reese and I, and maybe the production designers, went to visit some sororities in downtown LA. We knew that she needed a signature color, and we were like, do we really want it to be pink? It's so on the nose. It's so feminine. Could we do lavender? Could we do light blue? Is there another color that we could do? When we met all the sorority girls, it had to be pink. <laughs> so anyways, because everyone doesn't treat her seriously, this leads to Elle getting a makeover. And throughout the course of the film, she slowly sheds her sequins in hot pink. 
As she begins to devote herself to studying and making friends with her fellow students, she begins to wear more blues, oranges, and purples. While still youthful and fun, especially compared to other students, her costuming for this period of this film is more casual and functional. Once Elle lands the law internship, she begins to wear less color and wears even more conservative business attire. While never truly blending in, it's clear that she's attempting to dress in a more traditionally appropriate manner to be taken seriously. However, when Elle gets uh, sexually harassed by her mentor, by her professor, it's clear to the audience that no matter what she dresses like, she's still going to be sexualized and she's not going to be taken seriously as a lawyer. So when she returns to court as Brooke's lawyer, she's back in her signature color. She's back in what she likes. And she ends up winning, which I think is like proving this whole message that being feminine does not mean you are less serious or less qualified or less professional. And you should not have to dress a certain way to prove that you are good at your job. And I don't know if you guys noticed, but the three movies that I picked correspond to the three major ways that celebrities project their innocence in court. So in Chicago... Roxy Hart is projecting innocence in To Kill a Mockingbird. Tom Robinson is trying to be as professional as he can be. And in Legally Blonde, Elle Woods is walking in there like she doesn't give a fuck because <laughs> she's good at her job. So we've reached the end of this episode. I'd like to thank you all for listening. And hopefully nothing crazy will happen next week. So I'll be back next week. I hope you have a lovely rest of your day. See you later. Hey.